Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Tensions over the Ukraine-Russian crisis have been simmering for more than two months, with diplomatic efforts to resolve the issue showing little sign of progress. Russia has more than 100,000 troops on its border with Ukraine, sparking Western warnings of an imminent invasion. Anti-war activists across Europe are organising and strategising to resist the war, and a coalition of these activists organised a public meeting on the 25th of January. And it's a broadcast of this panel that I bring you today on Accent of Women. The two organisations involved in this panel are European Alternatives and Another Europe is Possible. The panel host is Alena, and she starts here by introducing herself, the meeting and the panellists. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight's event. My name is Alena Ivanova. I'm part of the Another Europe is Possible um, team. We've got a great panel with people joining from all over Europe and the world because this is um, not just a crisis in Ukraine, not just a crisis in in Russia, not just a crisis in in Europe. This uh, concerns all of us. Tonight's event is part of a joint initiative between European Alternatives and Another Europe is Possible. We want to work together with civil society activists in Ukraine and in Russia. We want to build a coalition and like all coalitions, we don't all think the same. We don't perfectly agree on every point, but we are united in the belief that we need to combine opposition to war and a resounding no to Russian military intervention in Ukraine. But we need to also campaign against authoritarianism, crony capitalism. We need to defend human rights across the world. So tonight we're going to hear from a truly excellent uh, panel. Uh, and I'm very excited. Um, I'm very much here to to learn from our speakers. I'm going to introduce them in the order that they will be speaking. Alexandra Madvyuchik is a human rights lawyer and a civil society activist. Uh, she's based in Kiev, where she heads the Center for Civil Liberties. She was the winner of the 2016 OSC um, Democracy Defender Award. Yulia Yurchenko is a senior lecturer in political economy at the Greenwich University and also part of the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign. And last but not least, we have Mary Caldor, uh, an Emeritus Professor of Global Governance at the London School of Economics, co-founder of the Helsinki Citizens Assembly in 1990, previously a leading figure with uh, European nuclear disarmament and very much a cherished part of the Another Europe is Possible National Committee as well. And I'm going to open the floor and uh, invite Alexandra to, to speak. Thank you very much for providing me a floor. I would like to present uh, several theses. I will start with the point that it's appeared that we were not ready for current developments. At the time of the Soviet Union's confrontation with the West, there were politicians in both camps who had survived and remembered the horrors of the Second World War. But there has been a change of generations. War is now seen as a geopolitical tool and there is no more psychological mechanism of deterrence. Therefore, despite the alerting signals of the Munich speech in 2007, Russians' actions caught everyone by surprise. 
At present, we see the only diplomats and the military respond to the threats of war. Meanwhile, the society in different countries still doesn't want to leave the zone of comfort. People climb to the old world, which doesn't exist anymore. But the mantra, maybe Putin will change his mind, maybe he was joking, will not work. The role of observers in a world where everything is very interconnected is dangerous for the world itself. One needs to get out of the comfort zone and take a stance. The world needs to find ways to counter the threats of war. It's not about the relation between Russia and Ukraine. It's about the civilizational confrontation between the authoritarianism and democracy. Ukraine is at the forefront of the fight. To counter the threats, we must study the experience of the Cold War because Russia's current leadership follows the same logic. It seems that they want to take us in the past to pay back what they had once lost. But now the Kremlin has fewer resources for the chess party, so they are betting on war. History taught us that wars begins with propaganda, provocation, and hybrid methods. We also know how they end. Either with the defeat of one of the parties and enormous human casualties, or with a powerful anti-war movement within the aggressor state. Its members feel that they belong to the broader system, human civilization. We lack the international solidarity movement that can find support in another form, but with the same anti-war appeals in authoritarian Russia itself. I have been defending human rights for about 20 years. I know that there are many things not limited with national borders. I know that freedom is one of them. Only freedom spreading make our world safer. Different institutions may play different roles in deterring and preventing war. People who want peace can work in different ways. There may be different visions, but we must all keep the same pool of values. And as for Ukraine, we have no other choice. Take any recent polls. Freedom has always come first for Ukrainians. We will fight with Russia if it launched a new military invasion of the country. We will defend people, our freedom and human dignity. We will defend the values of the free world. And I hope that the world will not just watch this. Thank you. Thank you, Alexandra. And we offer our deepest uh, solidarity to you. It must be such a stressful time um, for you, for your comrades, for everyone you, you work with. I'm going to turn to Yulia now. Um, thank you very much, Alona. Thank you, the organizers. Thank you, everybody who came to this panel and the panelists indeed. This is a very difficult time that we're living in, and uh, it's it's really humbling to be part of this conversation. And indeed, many of these need to happen. There are a lot of aspects, of course, and problems to consider. And for the uh, time constraints, of course, I'm, I'm going to have to be selective. So as a Ukrainian living abroad, it's always a difficult time watching these things from afar. Uh, but one of the things that outraged me most last 
week was the uh, were the remarks from President Biden about graduated sanctions in terms of uh, there being potentially minor or major or whatever other proportion of incursions into Ukraine. And, you know, where there are these conversations about, oh, the war may happen. The war is already on and it's not the only war. So one of the things that I found that, that really hit a nerve with me was this, was the normalization of border violations, acceptance of existing conflicts as normality, as if, you know, we just have to accept that they're there. And we've heard it from certain naval officials from Germany, some of the sentiments that uh, echo through reverberate through the corridors of power uh, and I'm sure he was not the only one who had that view that oh you know let's forget about Crimea let's forget about this let's forget about that we're moving on well people who live in the areas that are subject to conflict do not have the kind of option of dismissing them and sweeping them under the carpet and pretending like everything is nice and cheerful now because some time has gone by so this normalization of conflicts, it's happening before uh, our eyes. And with that kind of the purpose and the premise of international security architecture and mutual assurance principles go out of the window. And indeed, if Ukraine's, po Ukraine's post 2014 history has taught us anything, is to not be surprised that these kind of statements that, you know, there are some there is some sort of graduation apparently to how much border is okay to violate, how many people is okay to kill, some sort of... Um, dismissive attitudes towards certain territories more than to than, than of the other. There are a lot of calls we hear from, from politicians and in the press about going back to the Minsk uh, agreements. So, and, and that so-called agreement that uh, contributing parties actually find impossible to accept in the case of Ukraine, because those fraught, flawed agreements in themselves involve a lot of contradictions and those contradictions will keep coming back uh, and this is why we need to look at where they are if these ongoing conflicts are to be resolved. So there is an ontological inconsistency that undermines any hope for reconciliation from the outset, even if the current threat and saber rattling from Russia were not even on the table. So those agreements, for example, have these irreconcilable interpretations of Ukraine's sovereignty. And I want to speak to the question of Ukraine's sovereignty and the question of peace, uh, specifically in the last in those minutes that are allocated to me. So in the Minsk agreement, for example, the, the whole question of whether Ukraine is sovereign and then in what way it is sovereign is being questioned because Russia sees that sovereignty is limited and it is stipulated in those agreements. Whereas Ukrainian government side tried to, to try to reconstitute Ukraine within the borders of 2013. And therefore there is a paradox uh, in the fact that the agreements around Ukraine's sovereignty interpret the those uh, the kind of the understanding of sovereignty differently as both an inalienable fact of international relations and law and as a subject of, to interpretation in a neo-colonial historical revisionist attempt by Russia. And as a result of this paradox, Russia and Ukraine see the situation at hand for a set of reasons differently and thus offer an ontologically inconsistent starting point upon which no meaningful compromise can be achieved, let alone when decisions are being made on behalf of Ukraine with its own internal complexity of voices as a proxy. So whether one needs to be seeking compromise uh, as well in a situation where hybrid military aggression is involved uh, is also an important question to ask, but this is not, I, I do not have time to go into that. And uh, of course, you know, Kremlin continues painting themselves as a victim uh, in this, uh, in the whole situation since 2013 and indeed earlier. Uh, and then they use the Ukrainian, Ukraine's uh, Russian speaking population as a pretext for invasion and annexation of Crimea uh, and support for separatism in Southeast Ukraine. And it, but it is Ukraine's borders and sovereignty 
that were violated and Ukraine citizens who were displaced and wounded, traumatized and murdered. But we are eight years deep into all of this and thus the lens uh, and effectively the solutions to be applied to the current situation need to be different. And again, we see this uh, escalation ramping up of, uh, of the temperature by Russia. And not only Russia, we're in the UK and we're all paying attention to what comes out of, uh, of these lands. Um, but again, we can leave it to discussion uh, later. So there, there is a lot of ramping up. Uh, and then we need to be talking about different, different solutions that they were uh, potentially to Southern Poutine because we're not talking about the same Ukraine and we must include the voices and interest of all Ukrainians. Specifically, I want to say that it's important to pay attention to what the working classes first and foremost actually want and what kind of Ukraine they want to see. And I'm talking here about working classes of all parts of Ukraine, of Ukraine and the borders of 2013. If any meaningful plan of what is to be aimed at politically to be developed. There are many aspects to consider here. And again, like, you know, I've done the last minute or two to mention, to, to speak to the question of sovereignty and the question of peace more broadly. Because when we talk about sovereignty, we do not only talk about borders. We talk about the aspects of economic, polit political decision-making. And they're all being strengthened in multiple ways. And nothing, and yet, of course, there is nothing more devastating than a military threat to any of those. But yet again, this question of sovereignty dovetails with the question of decision-making, which is being denied in, the, in terms of geopolitics, in terms of military solutions, in terms of foreign policy solutions, in terms of economic policy solutions. And, and besides that, any meaningful sovereignty for Ukraine or any country is impossible without a stable and relatively independent, resilient and flexible economic system. And currently Ukraine again stares down the rabbit hole of debt with few assets left to sell, low investor confidence and high household indebtedness. And its economy is at the mercy of its creditors yet again on top of everything else, as well as is it is at the, hand, at the hands of the homebred and foreign uh, oligarchs and until the workers of Ukraine are deciding their own destiny, which they haven't for a long time, there will be no justice and no peace in Ukraine. And without empowering the workers and debt forgiveness for the country and household indebtedness, the, the sovereignty of the country will be fiction, even when military threat is gone. So this is something that is a larger dimension of peace building and reconciliation in Ukraine is something that needs to be considered. Without these antagonisms along class lines and inequalities, uh, and rifts in the society, there can never be any, any proper meaningful discussion about peaceful resolution and sovereignty restoration. Further complexity, of course, arises from the multi-ethnic and secessional elements uh, in the borders of 2013 Ukraine. And if reconciliation and rebuilding is to happen, it will have to address that complexity in a, in a way of a meaningful compromise. What shape it will take it is for us to see, but steps need to be made in, in order to, to amplify the voices of those whose destiny is being decided. And it shouldn't be left to uh, NATO, to, it shouldn't be left to Russia, it shouldn't be left to the United States. Because and this is going, going to the question of peace. The global dance of might must end. Building up massive arsenals, military alliances, ramping up military production, just in case to deter what might happen, is not working too well, is it? And at the same time, having security guarantors threat you with military aggression and indeed uh, invading your country, which is what happened with Russia and Ukraine, when Russia was supposed to guarantee Ukraine's sovereignty and uh, integrity of borders after Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. Well, well when, when your guarantors invade 
you, it's not a very strong argument in defense of nuclear non-proliferation, which again brings up the global temperature around militarization questions. So while neo-colonial and neo-imperialistic nature of Russia's moves is clear, the reasoning behind it is more complex than a simple ambition of might. And while using neighbors and bar- as bargaining chips is unacceptable, we can also admit at the same time that the spread of NATO membership and partnerships globally since the fall of USSR has not helped the situation. US and NATO and Russia since the Transnistria crisis and onward have been part of a mutually reinforcing synergetic dance uh, where misgivings and missteps of one reinforce the same of another. And the more wounded Russia acted, the more convincing pro-NATO arguments were in the region of Central Eastern Europe and Asia and elsewhere. And the more partners NATO had, the more compelled Russia was to twist its, the arms of its neighbors. And it just becomes this never-ending self-perpetuating cycle. And that uh, and that pushing and the bullying of both must stop. There won't be any stability without United States and Russia dialing back security threats and stashing away the, the weapons and acting together to demilitarize the world globally. And in the case of Ukraine, what we need to be working towards are labor-centric demilitarized solutions, which of course are difficult to envisage right now, but to work out what they might be, a dialogue needs to be made and evidence needs to be collected from what that is that people in Ukraine want, what it is that people in DNR and LNR want, what it is that the people of Crimea want, not what the local oligarchs want, but what actually, what kind of future can be built in the territory of what used to be Ukraine in 2013. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julia. And I I agree that there's uh, so many kind of socioeconomic uh, factors that we need to begin incorporating into our ideas of security and what, what that means. Finally, uh, Mary, um, over, to, over to you. Well, we've just had some really great interventions. And I think this is an incredibly important meeting uh, because we are at an extraordinarily dangerous moment in the development of Europe. I want to say, first of all, that I think the cause is the new type of authoritarianism exemplified by Putin uh, that is the combination of crony capitalism, oligarchy, and nationalism. And we don't only see it in Russia, we see it in Poland, we see it in Hungary, we see it in Brexit, we see it in Trump. And that kind of authoritarianism is not just a domestic problem, it's an international problem. Uh, We can only understand what Putin is doing in that he does not want to see democracy in Ukraine. That's the problem. He does not want to see democracy in Russia. He does not want to see the end of oligarchy or the exposure of the crimes that are involved in oligarchy. Does the West have any responsibility for this, given that we see the same phenomenon in the West, in Le Pen, in Brexit, and so on? I think that NATO expansion was a mistake. Uh, I think that continued armament of the West, including nuclear weapons, was a mistake. Uh, Many of us hoped at the end of the Cold War we would create a new European security system based on human rights. Uh, Nevertheless, I think that's a pretext uh, for Russia. It's not the cause. What I think 
is more of a responsibility is the, the ideology of market fundamentalism that we experienced in the West and we experienced and was imposed on the Soviet Union, although it was welcomed by many, at least those who became very rich. Uh, I think there was a view somehow that we introduced the market and we would transition from a centrally planned economy from totalitarianism to bourgeois capitalism. In fact, the transition was to kleptocratic oligarchy. <laughs> and in that sense, it was a huge problem, but not only the West problem. The second thing I really wanted to say was about the nature of this war. You know, I don't think if, this, if the war does begin, and it looks incredibly likely, you, somehow all those troops amassed on the Ukraine border will have acquired a sort of momentum of their own. But I don't think there are going to be clear victors or clear losers. Um, I take Paul's point about a new type of war, but nevertheless, it's going to be like the other new types of war, only worse. There will be Ukrainian resistance, just as there was Afghan and Iraqi resistance, and it will be stronger than in Iraq or, or Afghanistan, because if you remember in those places, it didn't begin at once, at least at first, uh, people welcomed the American presence. And what I think you're likely to get is a long process of ongoing violence. Uh, which is incredibly difficult to end. We've reached a point in the development of technology that there isn't that much difference between very advanced technology and not very advanced technology. There isn't that much difference between the improvised explosives that are possessed by Afghan militias and American sophisticated weapons. And the result is a very long war in which a lot of nasty people benefit. And in a way, maybe that is what Putin hopes for. I don't know that he's thought it through in that way, but his interest is destabilization. It's continued tension because that's how he stays in power. And my fear is that this will be very destructive, very nasty, and very, very difficult to end. Um, so let me sort of my final point, talk about what is the process through which it can end. And part of the process is an anti-war movement and civil society. And we know from conflicts in other places that the level of what I call civicness, the level of civil society and civic activism is incredibly important in resisting this type of violence. But I also think we have to think about the content of dialogue. In 1975, an agreement was reached among all the countries of Europe and North America called the Helsinki Agreement, and it had three components. The first component was the territorial status quo in Europe, security, prevention of war. The second component was economic and social cooperation. And the third component was human rights. And I think the signing of the Helsinki Agreement was really the beginning of the end of the Cold War. At that time, the Soviet Union signed on to human rights provisions, thinking it wouldn't really matter. But as it happened, it did matter because activists 
built on those human rights provisions and started campaigning. I think those three components amount to what I usually call human security. We didn't call it that then, but it's about the idea that we're going to shift from a national, nationally based security, national security based on war fighting and armies and the protection of borders and states to a human rights-based security where we recognize that we're only secure if everybody's secure, <laughs> where we recognize that it's the security of individuals that matter, of migrants, of displaced persons, of Russians, of Ukrainians, of British people, and that we can't be secure unless we all, unless we support each other. So what would it mean now to have a dialogue about these issues. I am in favor of a dialogue, even if it may be too late, but I think it needs to have similarly three components. I think the first component is to prevent war, and there the most important aspect is being defensive. I think it's too late to stop NATO's expansion. It's, we can't possibly say that Ukraine or Georgia are not allowed to join NATO, but NATO could shift towards a defensive human security-based strategy, could shift away from offensive weapons like nuclear weapons uh, towards a purely defensive posture. And that was something that some of us talked about in the last years of the Cold War. And I think that would make a big sort of difference in the mix. The second component is economic and social cooperation. We have to cooperate about the pandemic. We have to cooperate about climate change. We have no choice. And so I think that second component has to be in the mix because we live in a world where we don't only have existential threats from war, we have existential threats from pandemics and from climate change and indeed from extreme poverty. And the final component is human rights, which is absolutely crucial because in the end, the only way we can get peace in Europe is to get rid of this new form of authoritarianism. That final speaker was Mary Kaldor, before her, Yulia Yurchenko, and Alexandra Matvichuk was the first speaker. The panel host was Elena from Another Europe is Possible. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.